This time on Poll Hub, it's back to the states, the battleground states, Nevada, Wisconsin, Minnesota, states that made a difference in 2016. Will they make a difference in 2018? Sure looks like they will. And also, something we've talked about before, the New York Times real-time live Super Bowl thing. We actually talked to the Siena Poll, people who are doing it, and there's some news on that. We'll discuss that as well. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Depper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll. And I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Marist Poll. And I'm Lee Marengoff, Director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion. So we have a very busy fall, and it's because, as we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly, this is a historic midterm cycle. There's really never been, at least from what we're seeing right now, there's never been one like this with more intensity and more um, uh, potential shifting of power uh, and more enthusiasm. I mean, we're talking, people are talking about turnout levels that could approach presidential turnout levels. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are in the states and we're going to be in the states uh, all the way through until November. The latest ones, Nevada, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Let's start with Nevada because this is kind of an outlier. It's a place where a Republican senator maybe is endangered in a season when it's basically a bunch of Democrats who who we thought were in danger. Yeah, th yes. Uh, this becomes a, a very, very important strategic, strategic state for both Democrats and Republicans. Um, as you indicate, Jay, this is the only state that's really competitive that Hillary Clinton carried in 2016, uh, but that there's a Republican incumbent. So we're hearing about the Democrats have to pick up a net two seats to take control of the majority in the Senate. Well, N Nevada is a place they could pick up one, and it might offset any losses elsewhere. But all things being considered, they almost have to win in Nevada. And letting look at the numbers, we're seeing that that is not a foregone conclusion. In fact, when we looked at our likely voter pool, um, the Republican Heller is actually up two points over the Democrat Jackie Rosen, which which means it's, for all intents and purposes, a dead heat. Um, but, but editorially, you want to be you on the other side. Be, you always want to be. You always want to be on, on, on top of these things. We do see in Nevada the similar kind of enthusiasm that the Democrats are, are enjoying elsewhere, and even a seven-point advantage over the Republicans in terms of people being very enthusiastic. But I want to talk about in a second, uh, go into that in a little more uh, depth. Obviously, that's not enough to, to, to tip the scales in the favor of the Democratic candidate. In the so-called congress generic congressional ballot question, you know, the gap between one party and the other in terms of whether people are going to vote for a Democrat or Republican for Congress, uh, the number that gets bantied around, Democrats in Nevada only with a plus one and among likely voters, it's a minus one for the Democrats, meaning there's no real generic congressional advantage for either party in that state as well. So having said that, you then turn to the Senate toss-up, and to have it being 44 for the Republican and 42 for the Democrat makes some sense. And the group that seems to be the one who is not performing to, the, to what the Democrats need or overperforming for the Republicans are the Hispanic voters. 
uh, a critical group. The Democrats are carrying the Hispanic voters, but they're not running up the score. And incidentally, you mentioned the uh, New York Times survey. Um, our number for Heller, the Republican among Hispanics, is 39% currently. The New York Times survey has it at 38. So we're seeing a very simpler, similar result. Uh, Hispanic voters in places like uh, uh, Nevada and Texas and Florida, uh, very different than we might find in New York and New Jersey and other places. This is not, this is in fact a diverse group uh, under the label of Hispanic voters. And I think that's what we're, we're seeing there. Um, and we saw some other things, clearly the Kavanaugh thing, uh, a voting well, issue. You know, why don't you, yeah. why don't you pause, yeah, you know, sure. not pause there, but why don't, um, I, I'd like your, to know your thoughts about how the, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings may have impacted uh, this race or these states, because um, certainly we were polling during that whole uh, controversy. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to have had the kind of impact we, you know, are hearing elsewhere. I mean, this has been a close race all along, and it remains a close race. Um, the Kavanaugh thing cuts closer in terms of the national numbers. Nevada is closer in terms of people supporting, opposing, voting for someone who supported him, voting for someone who opposed him. Uh, the, the difference is not enormous, and therefore Heller does not get hurt as much in Nevada as he might have, as a Republican might have elsewhere in a state where a vote for Kavanaugh was seen as a bad thing. Similarly, when you look at Donald Trump's approval rating, well, his approval rating is about 40% in Nevada. Well, that's very close to elsewhere. But the disapproval is at 47. So the gap for Trump, well, he's not casting the kind of shadow in Nevada that he's casting elsewhere. And among those who strongly approve and strongly disapprove, there's not a huge difference among them. Usually we're seeing it at two to one. The strongly disapproves in Nevada are outnumbering the strongly approves, but not, again, to the numbers that the Democrats would want. So all things being equal, the Democrats like would feel a lot more comfortable if these were not the numbers in Nevada going in to the finals, uh, to the home stretch for the, the Senate. So that that's my take yeah, that's, on that's Nevada. Yeah, that's interesting, because um, I see things that... I'm, I'm looking at Minnesota, and I see things that are a little bit different than what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the one of the main changes that I think we saw um, in Minnesota was a, a change in enthusiasm, particularly among Republicans and independents. Um, Eighty percent of registered voters in Minnesota said that they consider this year's midterms elections to be really, really important. And that was up from 64% that we had in July. Now, everybody went up, but Democrats less so. So Democrats were already energized in, in, mm -hmm. in July. 80% of them in July told us that they thought that, that uh, the election was of utmost importance. And now they're now it's 86 percent. But Republicans, Republicans went from 64 percent to 82 so percent, and that's that, why I was asking you about effect. you know if yeah. you saw any of that in yeah. Nevada, because I think that that did energize. I mean, granted, it's it's hard to show causation scientifically yeah. because this is a time so, of the year where you're going to see that kind of attention. So what's the gap again in enthusiasm now between Democrats and Republicans? Yeah, I mean, a Demo uh, just four points. Okay, so, so we had seven mm -hmm. in Nevada, so it's, uh, again, but that was, a different, uh, different you know, situation. That was, uh, you know, uh, what, 16 points in July. Okay. So that was that's the, that's the change that I think we're seeing and hearing about now. 
internationally, and Minnesota is a good example of that. And independence as well. Independence went from 55% to 74%. And I think Minnesota is a little different when sure. it comes to independence, because I haven't seen those kinds of numbers in other states or even nationally in terms of an energy coming from independent voters. They tend to kind of back off when they see all this kind of political polarization and the intensity sure. of, on both sides, because that's not what they're about. They they want compromise. They want a, a more middle-of-the-road solution. Sure. And so, but, but Minnesota is a fun place because you get two for one. It's You have a sale on Senate seats. I do. I do. We, uh, Minnesota actually has uh, three very important statewide races. Um, uh, Amy Klobuchar, who we got to see during the the, um, the, the hearings uh, for Kavanaugh uh, is the incumbent uh, Democratic farmer labor candidate, uh, which is what it, the Democrats are called in, in Minnesota. Um, and she is well on her way to uh, re-election. She has a 60 percent uh, to Republican Jim Newberger's 32%. Newberger is not particularly well known in the state. I think of half of the voters we sp uh, spoke with said that they really they were unsure or didn't really hear about him. I think him. of the hearings, you know, the talk possible presidential candidate emerged with her performance because she really seemed to be very serious and on top of things. And, yeah, and it was measured and it, yes. it was it was serious and it was uh, reflective and I think ref and and so mm. I, th I think that um, she came out of that kind of a public setting mm -hmm. even more positive uh, than, than she went in, although she's been very popular um, for some time in uh, in Minnesota. But we Minnesota also, uh, because of uh, the resignation of Al Franken, because of the recent unpleasantness uh, with him, uh, Tina Smith had been appointed, um, again, the Democrat, um, it, to the Senate, and so th there is a special election for the other Senate seat this time around, and she is uh, competing against Republican Karen Housley, um, and again, in Minnesota, the same thing. The Democrats are doing quite well. Uh, Tina Smith has 54 percent and leads uh, Karen Housley, uh, who has 38 percent among likely voters uh, that we, we polled. Um, and the the, the number is pretty similar. Again, it's a 13-point lead, even when we look at registered voters mm -hmm. overall. So she has a strong advantage um, uh, uh, there, uh, and the Democrats have a strong advantage of maintaining those two uh, Senate seats, uh, and, for which uh, they have to. Sure, that, these are must-wins for them. What does Trump uh, look like in, in those two states in uh, terms of Before I head there, though, okay. we, also have, um, we also have a governor's race there, oh, yeah. because Mark which, which I forgot about talking about, <laughs> Nevada, where okay. Lex... Lexalt has a narrow edge among uh, the Republican candidate yeah. in Nevada. Now, is he the grandson uh, of the former senator? I believe the grandson, of I think Former so. Senator Paul Lexalt. Yes, I, I think, think he has a middle Definitely, name. Yes. He has a middle name to that effect, but I don't know if that was the, that was the case. Yeah. Um, but Definitely in the lineage. He would show up on the 23andMe thing. Is that what it is? <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. that, he would show up on that. Um, so, so Mark Dayton, um, the governor of uh, Minnesota, is not seeking re-election. Um, he's served two terms. He can serve a third term and has chosen not to. I believe he had some health issues over his term. Um, I don't know if it's that or you know some of the uh, you know the intensity of the of uh, governing 
that is also weighing on him, but he decided not to seek re-election. So we have Tim Walz, uh, the Democrat, uh, against Republican uh, Jeff Johnson uh, in that state. And again, uh, Walz has a very strong lead, although he has 51 percent. Uh, Jeff Johnson, who is lesser known um, and not as popular um, in the state, has 36. Uh, Walz has a very positive uh, rating among um, um, residents of, of Minnesota. He's well-liked uh, statewide. So again, that is a very strong um, likelihood. It's, it, it's interesting because um, although Dayton is also a Democrat, he, he was a Democrat, he was probably the first Democrat governor in, in a number of decades mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Minnesota. So um, it looks like uh, he may be passing the baton, but of course, we won't know that for another mm -hmm. month. Yeah, and, and, and what's interesting, of course, is when we look at a place like Minnesota, and other states that we've been looking at in the Midwest, we're seeing a very different picture than we saw in 2016, which is yes. where uh, Donald Trump cracked the blue wall. And I know, Jay, you want to talk a little bit about Wisconsin, which we also have on our Midwest list. So what, what are we seeing out in the Badger yeah, state? Yeah, I mean, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, I think, is actually uh, you know more interesting than, um, than perhaps Minnesota in that Wisconsin was um, a state that had been trending purple. Minnesota is, has not so much um, for some time, but it's been trending purple and then the blue wall was cracked, as you mentioned. So much like Nevada, it's become this kind of purple state where it's uh, a real battleground and you don't know if uh, a Democrat or Republican is gonna win and it really comes down to on any given race, uh, statewide race, uh, one or the other could win. It's interesting here, because we've been talking about senators all eyes in Wisconsin are really on the governor's race. Not that there isn't a Senate race that's important, and I'll mention it, but the governor's race because of who is the governor. The governor is, uh, a, is somebody who has been a Republican hero for a long time, Scott Walker, for the variety of reasons of, of what he did when he came in. He withstood a recall election, and then he won re-election. The state has, in many ways, mirrored the divisions we're seeing across the United States mm -hmm with very, very evenly split people on one side feeling very strongly supportive of, of a Republican who has um, sought to make some significant changes, including um, uh, uh, municipal unions was was one sure. of the biggest uh, changes that he made where they, he took away a collective, well, he didn't take away, but the collective bargaining was ended for uh, unions, uh, municipal unions and state worker unions. And this has been something that has driven a wedge down the center of uh, normal, otherwise nice, you know, Wisconsin. And it really is mirrored in what's happened in the U.S. So Scott Walker is right now in our poll 11 points down against a Democrat who nobody has, was really particularly aware of. At, at, but after a very crowded primary, he emerged. And um, it's an indication, I think, of the intensity of, of um, the Democratic voters or the Democrats and independents in Wisconsin. Right now, uh, Scott Walker is at uh, uh, 42%, and Tony Evers, the Democrat, is at 50%. Uh, I do want to mention, and I want to get back to this. Jay, uh, you said 11 points. Uh, I'm here with my calculator. Let's see. It's actually eight, eight points. points. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's because uh, Evers, yeah, yeah, Evers, right Evers is right at 50%. Yeah, it's 50 and 42. It's not yeah. 11 points. Sorry. Okay. I was, I was scrolling down my page to get to that. The, the, the point with, with that race, uh, again, is that um, this is a, a guy who is very, very popular 
among his base, Scott, uh, Scott Walker. And you can see that in the intensity of support, which is really interesting. He's actually got more intensity of support than uh, the Democrat does. So even though he's behind, his supporters are significantly more enthused about him than uh, Tony Evers. So and that's a whopping you know, number. In fact, that, we, don't, we don't see that often. I think, is it 80 percent? Of his, yes. of his supporters yeah. said that they were firmly committed to him. And that's a very, very unusual uh, number. You know, sometimes we see that for um, minor candidate, you know, minor party candidates where people have an intensity for that party, so they don't have a lot of supporters, but it's very, very intense. Or sometimes we see it in the primaries, but very unusual to see that in a general election. So that's got to be taken into account. And I think the wild card here is if you look at uh, non-college educated white women, we'll drill down to, to one subgroup, uh, a third of them uh, are persuadable. And we've been talking about these persuadables and, and, and uh, Lee, you can, you'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about persuadables in a little bit here across all these states. But if you look at these persuadables, the biggest uh, group of persuadables is this group of women. And it's funny because they're seen in many of these other states as the ones who have most turned against Donald Trump. Uh, not that they are against Donald Trump in record numbers, but the biggest switch has come with this group. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that they're the ones who are still most persuadable on this. Mm -hmm. They're still not convinced that uh, that Scott Walker's uh, not their guy. Really and, quickly on the Senate yeah. race, um, Tammy oh, Baldwin, who's the on, incumbent. Hang on, hang on. Yep. Hang on. Before, you, before you move on, I just wanted to get your sense. So do you think uh, you're seeing this eight-point difference um, between Evers and uh, Walker? Um, Given the other numbers you're talking about, the intensity, um, this kind of, uh, you know, softness among, you know, um, you know uh, women um, and, um, you know, that they may still, many may still be undecided. Um, should we count Walker out? No, I, I, no. I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and there's two reasons for that. One is the intensity of support that we just talked mm -hmm. about at 80 percent higher than the guy who's in the lead. And the second is this number of persuadables. I would say the third is that there's another poll that we respect yes. very much, the Marquette University poll. And they have a poll out uh, in the same time frame. They were in this field at the same time and they have a different result. In fact, they have Scott Walker ahead by a point. Yes. So I think that Wisconsin is a, a tough, it was a tough nut to crack in 2016. And I think it's, it's uh, difficult to say what's going to happen there based on who shows up at the polls. I, I, I did look at deep into kind of the, the methodology and what they were looking at in the Marquette poll. And, and interestingly, our results in terms of the number of Democrats and Republicans and independents we talked to as a percentage of, of, of this sample is much closer to the historical averages that Marquette University's poll um, publishes than their own from this poll. Their, their poll in this case have more Republicans than Democrats by four points uh, in the sample, which is a, a slightly more Republican sample than than historically you would see in Wisconsin, and ours is closer to their mm -hmm. historical average. So that could explain this difference. Mm -hmm. and that, and that's, uh, but yeah, but and, they're a good poll, and they yes, they do absolutely. what we do. I mean, absolutely. random RDD, and they're doing cell phones and landlines, and, and so you know, it's a good example of how two good polls can can reach different conclusions in this snapshot in time. Uh, and 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 the explanation is that we simply don't know what voters are, are going to do because voters get to decide that on election day. Yeah, and I think what we're the reason we've introduced, as you mentioned, Jay, this concept of persuadable voters is because we want to get 
introduce the concept of uncertainty, just how big a group is still on the table. And so we take a look at the undecided, which everybody always looks at, but we've also looked at the people who say they might vote differently in a state for one of the candidates. They're not strongly committed like the 80% that we've been talking about for Walker. And we take a look at those, and that shows that there's you know, typically a double-digit number of people who are still making up their minds, and therein may lie the difference between uh, the Marquette numbers and ours uh, as far as Wisconsin is concerned. The, the other thing that they did is uh, their lo- likely voter model is different, and this is really important f- uh, that you guys should talk to us about here. Um, their likely voter model is people who say, and this is their only criteria, they're definitely going to vote. That's it. Now they oh, show okay, results gotcha. in this in this in, in this particular race. He then uh, showed the results. If you model that likely voter thing differently, so if ninety percent of registered voters show up, if eighty percent show up, if those who have voted in the past show up, and he did four different models, and in some of those, um, Scott Walker is not ahead. So that may be the likely voter screen. May be it too. Talk a little bit about how we do a likely voter sure. model versus them, and why one or the other isn't necessarily valid or invalid. There's just, it's a different recipe. Well, exactly. And it is, it's usually the special sauce of the organization because there's no agreed upon way of defining likely voters uh, among, you know, survey researchers and pollsters in general. Uh, So what's, what's helpful is the tra- is to be transparent, and uh, which the Marquette poll has been, and as we are, what in what we do is we have actually three questions which we ask people about. We ask them whether they have an interest, you know, on a scale, um, how interested they are in the election, uh, their chance of vote, also on a scale. Um, that they have to rate themselves, and then if they've voted in a similar election in the past. And so we combine those numbers uh, so that we have an estimate for each person we speak to about the likelihood we think that they're going to turn out. So we're going to end up with a range of people that um, are not terribly likely to turn out to people who say and are pretty convinced that they're going to show up, you know, regardless of, of what happens. And what we know from our research is that although most of the people who subjectively answer those questions and are very confident that they're going to vote, a small proportion of them actually don't end up voting. Mm-hmm. And then we also know that the people who we speak with who are at the low end, who say, no, I'm not really interested, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to be out of town, or, you know, I'm just, I, I, I haven't voted in the past, and I'm not likely to vote this time. We also know some of those people actually do end up voting um, on election day, or in this case, um, you know, they can be voting early as well. So we have, we give each, uh, each person that participates in our poll what we call a probability score. And um, so everybody's included. There's no, there's no cutoff. Um, and, and what we find is because people on both ends of the range aren't necessarily perfect, um, we, don't, we don't cut them out and we, we have a likely voter model which allows for that kind of flexibility um, in people's uh, and, therein, and therein lies a, another potential difference in the numbers. You mentioned also briefly the Senate race yeah, in, in Wisconsin. We don't want to ever overlook a Senate race this time. Uh, what, what, what's, uh, what's, they, they're all right. This looks 
this looks an awful lot like Minnesota. Tammy Baldwin is the incumbent there, and she's holding a 54 to 40 lead over Leah Vukmir. This is um, a, a race where uh, the intensity is on Tammy Baldwin's side. So this is kind of flipped from the governor's race where the guy that's running behind, Scott Walker, actually has more intensity of support. In this case, Tammy Baldwin's intensity of support is significantly higher uh, than the Republican. Um, so it, it, this is probably a seat that, that Democrats are feeling comfortable with uh, and, and turning their attention back to Nevada, where, where the real problems could be yeah. for them, because uh, it doesn't look like it would be in Wisconsin, at least not right now. The, the one race that is going to be um, a marquee race on Election Day and everybody's going to be looking at Wisconsin is the race to, for um, Paul Ryan's seat, yes. which yes. is in the southern part of the state. It's the what they call the Chewaukee suburbs because the, the people commute from Wisconsin down into Chicago because it's so close. And that district centered on Janesville, where Paul Ryan is from, that's a race that uh, a lot of people have been looking at a, at a house level. And I think that's going to be the other marquee race that people talk about from, from Wisconsin uh, on Election Day. Uh, and right now, when we look again at the generic uh, ballot or, or Trump's popularity rating, the kinds of things that might have an impact on that race, things are trending towards the Republicans' favor. They're still behind in terms of the approval on the president, still behind on the generic, but things over the last poll, or since the last poll we did, have trended in the Republicans' direction. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in that race. But that's the other one I think on election night you're going to be you're going to be hearing about from Wisconsin. Yes, I, and people can tell that we all start getting a little more pace in our voices as we get closer to elections because that's what we enjoy. We like elections, and we're happy that people are showing enthusiasm. That's a good thing. You know, we we talked a little bit about the um, the Siena poll. In mm -hmm. fact, um, we we had. Um, the New York Times yes. live poll. That, that's the New York Times. Yep, the C, yeah. I should say, yes, the Sienna Upshot doing. poll the that they're doing. doing. It's live. the live yeah. poll that you can watch um, on on um, online, and you can watch the polling as it happens. And I think some people found it very interesting, and it's kind of let's uh, folks in uh, the public in on the secret and what we see uh, on a daily basis of what's happening in our phone room. But we've uh, we've seen some updates on that too, and they've as they've moved, I think, to also some statewide races. Mm -hmm. Did you guys have some thoughts on that? Well, you know, here's a case where transparency, and 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 I I may not like the sentence I'm about to say, but. I like the fact they are being transparent, but part of what it is is we're getting the score in the races they're looking at after the first inning, the second inning, the third inning, and some of that gets published and can be misleading and because it's based on very, very tiny samples. So, so, we, so, what, if they, so what are they doing differently, or what do you think has changed um, from you know, a few weeks ago when this was kind of a, a novel thing um, and, you know, people were excited to kind of get an inside look at it. Well, I think, I think in part when you start talking about Senate races, there are points of comparison with other polls more so than when you're talking about congressional races for the House because there just aren't a lot of good quality polls that are doing House races. So when they say, you know, candidate A is ahead in some House district, there's not a point of comparison. But in, let's say, Texas— they're showing Cruz up by, I believe, 12 points over uh, Beto O'Rourke. And that is beyond what a lot of polls are showing, although the Quinnipiac poll does have it, I think, up to uh, seven or nine points now. But most polls have been showing that as... Did, a more competitive. As ours, more competitive. Uh, they're showing uh, the Blackburn uh, seat in Tennessee, not the seat, but his candidacy, 
up by 15 points in Tennessee over the former uh, governor who's running as the Democrat, Bredesen. Um, and no one is. And we had that's Phil, Phil Bredesen. We had him. We had him up. We yes. had Bredesen up yeah, in did our you, last uh, poll. Yeah, I, I mean, some I have, I have, have some too. pretty strong opinions and about I got, that. I got one. But I want to. I want to. I want to get you guys into. You have another. Yeah, I was just going to say. And then interestingly, and, and interestingly, in the Heller race that they did, they had a very similar result to ours, which was three points. Uh, Nate Cohn from the New York Times has said that House polls, when he's talking about the House, are going to be noisy given the small sample size. And I don't know if I'm comfortable with noisy results now because we're getting them because of their transparency. We're getting them as it's occurring, and maybe we're seeing some results that are getting publicized and they may not be what their final numbers of those states show. That's all, or those congressional districts. Jay, did you have? Did you want to jump in with anything before I go on my rant? So yeah, I'm. I'm <laughs> right. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, and I'm probably going to join you out on this limb. Um, I, I don't think this serves anybody other than the Times in drying eyeballs and traffic. And I know that sounds harsh, but uh, when are you suggesting this is a gimmick? Uh, that is a word that I would uh, be comfortable using, yes. And, and very simply, the reason is that when we talk, when all scientific pollsters talk about transparency, when we talk about um, you know, trying to be accurate and working really hard to be accurate, um, uh, and then the difficulties in conveying these things to the media, to reporters, which I was one for 20 years, I was a consumer of polls on that end, I've learned more in the year that I've been, you know, the director of innovation here about polling than I did in the 20 years of having you guys poll for us at NBC. Um, I don't think this helps. It doesn't help the public and it doesn't help reporters. And, it, and I do think at the end of the day, it's a gimmick. Now, the reason I say I'm going out on a limb here is I may eat my words. Every one of their house polls, they right. may on election day, right. see, we told you, and they may get every one of them right. I, I just find it hard to believe that we're going to get there. And I think all it does is it increases the number of people who go, well, wait a second, you said this person was going to win, or, or you said that person, or you said the trend was this way or that way, or you predicted this. I mean, getting away from this prediction clock and this 50% chance or 90% chance of winning, I think would be the greatest benefit if we could get away from that after what happened in 2016. And, here, okay, and here's now Barbara Carvalho well, you know, with her rant. Well, the thing, the thing is, I almost feel, you know, um, what is old is new again. We dealt with, you know, when polling, when doing uh, telephone surveys was really easy, and I'm thinking, you know, back before 2008, um, when there wasn't as, you know, many issues, um, you know, with cell phones and all the things we've, you know, we've talked about, there was always the sense of um, different organizations doing what we called at the time tracking polls. Mm -hmm. And as we got close to an election, the last couple of weeks, um, these organizations would poll every single night and they would release the numbers every single morning. And what you did was you kind of saw like, you know, the uh, kind of the heart monitor, you know, going, you know, going up and down. And it, it suggested that the, these elections that they were trying to measure or monitor, um, to, to continue the analogy, um, was they were very erratic, that voters were erratic, that things yeah, it were- It made the electorate look very volatile when it was the polling methodology that was creating the, the appearance of the volatility. 
think I think with this with this method um, that Sienna and the Times, as part of Upshot, um, is doing, is they're creating that same kind of issue. And it's not that we're going to be seeing, you know, of 15 down to eight or down to two. Um, it's the it's the problem with the methodology. And science, I've always said, is hard. And part of doing surveys and the reason why we do them over uh, several evenings is because we're doing we're doing callbacks. We do this over several days. What you get on any one day isn't necessarily a reflection of what the public thinks. And they, and but they are showing just how many people you have to call in order to get your sample. And I think that's sort of an educated. No, there's point. absolutely benefits to it, but yeah. I but I do have an issue with this kind of concept of tracking and taking a pulse every single moment um and so you know it's it's a it's it, it's we'll see what happens and how well they have they they do in terms of providing a good narrative to these races which is what i think the goal of doing public polling is. and, and i'm just going to point out right now that uh, by way of advertising that we will be doing a super duper super extravaganza the our program right before the elections but i'm not going to say any this is under the heading of tease. tease this is a tease but it's going to be something that you haven't seen elsewhere but for the present that does it for this program Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marriage College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Did you York. say a marriage college? Did I really? I think I, you did. Let's try that again. Marist College. <laughs> it's yeah. We don't want to start suggesting that more is happening here than uh, than <laughs> just a good education. So, but I would also like to thank our um, our executive producer Mary Griffiths, who uh, points us in the right direction and keeps us current. And special help today. Uh, Kenny Marples is our editor, but uh, he was uh, filling in on the uh, on all the buttons and levers and all sorts of things that's, uh, that is at the, the desk. I'm going to blame him for any static that I always make. Uh, <laughs> so that was Kenny's fault this time. And so we'd also like to thank the Roper Center Archive at Cornell University, who provides us with the ability to look back at survey questions and results over the decades. And Jay is going to tell you about how you can learn more about us. <laughs> you can send your questions to PollHub at Marist.edu. Also reach out to us on social media. The best way to connect, we're at Marist Poll on Twitter and uh, Marist Poll on Facebook. And we answer those questions on this show and directly if they warrant it. And don't forget, look down on the device you're listening to this on. Hit the subscribe button. And that way, when the next episode comes next week, it will pop up in your queue and you'll be able to listen to it right away. And, and I just want to say, Lee, that tease right there at the end there, it sounded awful Trumpian to me, boasting about the biggest it, it surprise the, I've ever seen. It will be huge. Know, it just struck me it, as Trumpian. It will be huge. It will be the. It will make polling great again. <laughs>